Welcome to one of 200 for another week. This is your weekly uh, independent media and politics podcast uh, based in New Zealand. We talk about stuff in the weekends. This is our current events episode. Welcome back. You're here with me, Philip. We also have Bronco. How's it going? And Kyle. Good morning. Oh, whenever you're listening to this. Yeah, you can't control this on podcasts. That's the thing. People can listen to us whenever they want, and there's nothing we can do about it. Disgusting. <laughs> it's pretty rude. Unless you're listening on the radio, in which case, uh, thanks again for playing us on the radio and listening to us. We appreciate you. Yeah, good yeah. evening. All right. Yeah, I guess you can sort of uh, honk your horn in anger or maybe uh, slam a steering wheel in frustration, yell, yell at no one in particular over the, uh, the opinions that we're voicing here. Yeah, the um the Masonic handshake for one of two for one of two hundred listeners, so that you can identify other one of two hundred listeners, is that you toot two hundred times if you're listening in the car, uh, in quick succession, and that's how you know that someone's a one of two hundred listener. Beautiful. Yeah, people all over the country are doing it, and it's it's a movement that's picking up steam. I'm really excited about it. It's it's been great to watch. The craze that's shaking the nation. If you're a cyclist, uh, just ring that bell. 200 times. 200 times. 200 times. No more, no less. If, 100 if you go, times, we don't know who you are. 201 yeah. times, ridiculous. That's People will uh, be like, that doesn't make any sense. Why did that person just ring that bell 201 times? So if you do 200, though, they're like, ah, yeah, they're a podcast listener. A fellow traveler. <laughs> <laughs> and this is why we're the most popular podcast in New Zealand. For starting relatable crazes like this. Should we kick things off? Uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, to, give the, to give the people something to to, to honk and, uh, and ring the bicycle bells over. Um, uh, I guess we could talk about the, uh, the fact that what, well, like, almost immediately after uh, New Zealand concluded one trial over a major political party um, uh, breaking election financing laws, uh, we've gone into another one, and this one involving the two biggest <laughs> political parties. Uh, uh, basically, yes, once again, using all manner of shady strategies to uh, mask uh, certain donations uh, going into their coffers. Uh, so, yeah, the Labour, Labour National right now, uh, there's a, another serious fraud office uh, related hearing uh, around the fact that basically, I, I don't know if people remember, uh, uh, way, way back uh, uh, years ago, 20, 2017, I think, um, uh, part of the whole generally... Lee Ross uh, scandal, uh, besides the fact that he is a repugnant, odious uh, human being on pretty much every level, is the fact that uh, he, you know, what he revealed, what he tried to take down uh, Sam Bridges for was that uh, uh, Bridges had taken donations from this Chinese businessman, uh, Yikun Zhang, and uh, uh, had, had not declared it. And that, that was going to be the big. But that sort of got lost in the wider story of Jenny Ross being a, a huge, uh, uh, awful human being uh, and, and mistreating women and, uh, and having a mental health crisis after that. Uh, but that was the original scandal. And now we're sort of, we're, we're, this, this trial is basically centered around this businessman, some other, other uh, businessmen, some other Chinese businessmen who uh, Allegedly, according to the Crown, uh, was supposed to give money to Labour and National, and then uh, Labour and National worked out these systems for, for staffers to make bank accounts to, to, to hide the 
donations basically and, and lasting. So that's sort of that's what's happening. With but this uh, this case seems a little more these cases I should say it's important that there are two um, definitely don't seem the same I guess type of uh, corrupt behavior that we saw in the New Zealand First Foundation's case right alleged a- corrupt behavior. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Everything's alleged. I'm saying alleged now, open brackets until the end of the podcast. Um, <laughs> yeah, because it just, it's, it's less novel, right? Like there's always been a kind of assumption in New Zealand politics that this is going on at, at like quite high levels. But the the, the Jamie Lee Ross um, revelations, I guess, were important in that, in that context, right? It was like, ah, oh, yes, and they are doing what uh, it's sort of obvious that they would be doing. There's no reason that you wouldn't do these things. And as we talked about last time, like the problem with these uh, allegations coming up and not being treated with the seriousness they deserve politically is that like these things have to be prosecuted at a political level. Like the law isn't that powerful in New Zealand when it comes to these things. The laws are guidelines essentially (laughs) for lawmakers, right? And it gave us an answer to why there's always been a bipartisan accord between Labour and National for blocking any transparency or donations legislation uh, forwarded by any other party, um, which always seems like a shoo-in, right? Like, oh, yeah, we should know who's donating money to our political parties and we should know which lobbyists are constantly visiting our major parties. Um, and then you just have the most absurd arguments against it, Um either from Labour and National themselves or from their PR outriders or whatever, that, oh, no, 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 this is bad for democracy to not allow people to donate anonymously. And they they get treated as if uh, that's a legitimate argument to make about it. Yeah, I mean, it's, uh, for for one, it's just, it is remarkable to have two of these things, or, or, you know, uh, several of these things just happening in a cluster uh, uh, when we're, you know, still, still supposed to be a very non-corrupt country. You know, we have sort of a political system that supposedly is not uh, being uh, heavily and unduly influenced by a whole bunch of uh, interests, uh, contrary to, to, you know, the, the majority of the public. And yet, here we are. Um, and of course, you know, uh, what you're talking about there, the less transparency you have, of course, it's great because if you don't know something's happening, then you can always claim that everything's above board. And <laughs> there's no corruption because we're keeping our fingers in our ears and we're keeping our eyes shut. And so Andrew Little actually made the claim this week that he was kept at a distance from donations, so he just didn't know about anything. Which is part of it. Like, I don't doubt that. Like, that's part of how these systems are designed, right? Is to keep um, people who could be implicated at arm's length. Uh, but really frustrating. Uh, one thing also to add to your point about the lack of transparency, Carl, is they are amending the uh, election financing rules right now. And one of the things, I mean, they're adding limits to new limits, which which are good. But at the same time, they're also widening the, they're, they're Basically, making it so when you when you donate, that doesn't have to be disclosed until way later uh, than it is now. So it's sort of a it's, it's kind of like a you know they're trading one good thing for one bad thing essentially, and that, that does lead to this transparency. I mean, if we don't know, say, if there's a donation at a particular time, um, say while legislation is being debated uh, and 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 changed. And that's changed maybe in a way that is favorable to a particular industry or 
a particular company. Uh, and then we find out, you know, a year later, oh, actually, while this was happening, these guys donated to, you know, one or more parties who, who pushed this change. Um, that's well, that's great. We know now in hindsight that that this thing that happened was, you know, potentially pretty corrupt. But it would be nice to sort of know that closer to the time. Um, so it's it's interesting to me, and and actually quite when you think about it, baffling that, uh, or maybe not baffling, but pretty uh, pretty sus that at the same time that we're having these re repeated trials over <laughs> like three of the biggest political parties in New Zealand. Uh, doing shenanigans to 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 evade uh, financing laws that are directly to do with you know with with trying to influence legislation in new zealand's first case definitely uh we're also kind of like loosening some of the rules around de declaring those donations and the there's a green private members bill in under Golders Gutterman, um which is seeking to add a lot of that transparency like in the house um at the moment as well um and maybe one of the problems for it is it also includes a host of other um electoral changes uh like lowering the voting age and adding some other uh things that the electoral commission recommended in 2015 2016 um so and, and we, we know nothing about how labor and national are going to vote on that but i imagine they're not going to vote with it um because you know it gives more voting rights to people. Um, I think it brings back pr pr uh, prisoners' right to vote um, as well. Um, but yeah, it's meant to introduce a whole host of transparency rules. Um, I just, it's amazing to me that we've we've rested on these laurels of least corrupt um, country for so long. And everyone kind of, the media especially, they're, they're basically ignoring a lot of this stuff. They're like, this, should, this is outrageous. Like, this is incredibly outrageous stuff. This is real scandal stuff. Um, and instead, we're in a whole bunch of perception politics. Like, okay, look, here's some actual, like, reality and perception. But this they seem so inured with that situation. Like, oh, this is just how politics is, you know? Like, oh, everyone knew about that. Uh, wait, okay, did they? And if that's the case, why do people still like claim we're the least corrupt? Like it's uh, you're it's, right. No, it is baffling, Bronco. It's least least perceived corruption, right? But they always drop the perceived word from those ranking systems at a convenient moment <laughs> before the headline. Um, but I think we can imagine pretty plausibly that if only one of the major parties in New Zealand was going through this process, it would be in the media a lot more. Um, the kind of the both sidesist um, instincts would have kicked in i think so now it's become a annoying complicated structural legal question as opposed to something that you could you know produce to bash christopher luxon with every interview or jacinda with at every interview which they 100 percent would be doing if only one of those cases was going through and they uh, did do that for new zealand first right to to an uh, extent yeah, um absolutely. but this is just for anyone who's who's not a kind of New Zealand political junkie, um, and I know we do have listeners who, for some unknown reason, aren't. Um, <laughs> this, this is three of our major political parties of the last ever. You know, um, Labour and National are our two big um, kind of centre left, centre right parties. Um, one of them has held power for the last time of memorial. Um, and New Zealand First are like the constant minor party um, since the 90s, 
And so that's that's three of the mainstays of New Zealand politics have been involved in alleged um, donations scandals. And I know the New Zealand First um, case was thrown out, essentially. Um, people were found not guilty. But it was basically on the basis that, oh, the laws say, didn't say they couldn't. Um, like, it definitely wasn't ethical. It's airbud politics, right? There's nothing on the books that says New Zealand First can't set up a foundation <laughs> and then use it to run <laughs> basketballs. That's true, as, as we find out, I guess. Well, yeah, I mean, New Zealand is the least corrupt country in the world in the same way that Auckland is the most livable city in the world. It's, it's one of these things that sounds great on these lists. I don't know who, who uh, how they produce these uh, rankings, but it sounds good. And, uh, you know, you get to, to flaunt it around the world and, and people who don't know anything about uh, what happens here go, oh, oh, that sounds nice. That, that tracks with what I know about this country, which is like, everything's good and perfect and nice. Uh, but of course, yes, when you uh, like the opening of Blue Velvet, uh, you know, when you when you uh, zoom into uh, the well manicured lawn, you, you will eventually find that, you know, it's full of worms and beetles and, and, and horrible, disgusting things. Um, but, you know, uh, that's going to be going on for the next little while. Uh, we'll uh, keep an eye on it. Um, the, the other thing, I guess, that's been happening uh, this uh, this week is the, is the cost of wing payments um have been going through and started to go through uh to help new zealanders with this uh pretty crushing cost of living crisis which i i don't i'm not inclined to to use inflation because i think the inflation the, the covid inflation is the latest and relatively minor i would say addition to this cost of living crisis that has been going on in new zealand for a very long time yeah it's only just and, been like allowed to be talked about recently right yes yes because it's happening elsewhere in the world and it's become an issue everywhere and so now it's it's finally something that that um that's an issue here and and the reason it's an issue is because people have construed it as a um a, a, a product of too much government help and and basically people having too much money to spend but anyway, who, are, who are these people who have construed it this way <laughs> you know the media right, the politicians <laughs> no the media would never break her no no well you know i mean the media hasn't hasn't totally jumped in this train i actually think that the reporting around this hasn't been hasn't been that bad but still i mean i think uh maybe you guys feel differently i feel like looking at some of the coverage of the cost of living payment which uh and some of the issues that have sprung up uh, sprung up around it uh has kind of revealed some of this uh worldview uh where people are talking about well you know Maybe it's good that there were all these snaffers uh, with money being delivered because if people had a hundred bucks extra a month for three months, that might be bad for inflation. And uh, just which I absurd. Completely absurd. Yeah, yeah completely just incoherent. Absurd. Um, I think the fact that um, Hayden Donnell uh, over at Media Watch had an article out this morning um, calling out the media for their early coverage, at least, um, of the cost of living payments. Uh, says as much as you need to know. Um, and it's a, it's a really good piece as well. Go check it out. Because he gives us really clear uh, description, I guess, or he, he, like, he lists a whole bunch of articles and, and, and journos and opinion writers who just on Monday essentially just came out the gates firing at the cost of living payment um, as being a 
it was this bizarre confluence of tropes that the the right wing and the media um love to push from a neoliberal angle that if you kind of stack them up next to each other don't really make sense um going from some people got this that didn't need it um to these people who who maybe did need it but were overseas got it um these people who felt embarrassed about it overseas got it and they called me um and trying to and and then saying oh but it it wasn't really enough and you had a, a range of national MPs and comment and like right wing commentators having the temerity to say oh but beneficiaries should have got it too and so you just had this this whole right host of attacks against it all bundled together um the only one of which uh really matters for this kind of payment is that it wasn't universal um that it didn't go to beneficiaries um and superannuates and then this whole host of other things where we, we don't know some of the numbers and labels are like yeah okay well and the the other thing i that's key about it people have been complaining about the fact that a bunch of people that i think um I, I don't want to get this wrong. Several hundred thousand people, let's say, uh, did not get it when they were supposed to, when they were eligible. Um, and that, that's been a big thing that, you know, people who, uh, uh, there was a, a, a woman who said that she didn't get it because her income had been calculated when she was with a partner. There was someone else who hadn't, you know, they were an independent contractor. And so, uh, you know, there was around the, 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 the dates of when they, uh, uh, before their financials didn't, didn't uh, line up with when these were meant to come and all that stuff. And this is all legitimate, but I mean, I'm sorry to tell everyone, this is what happens when you want to do this kind of policy, but you decide to make it targeted instead of just universal. Because of the fact that you require all this paperwork and bureaucracy, and because uh, it, it, you know, you're, you're looking into people's finances and to make sure that they, God forbid, that they get 300 bucks over three months. Uh, that uh, that this is what what ends up happening is you get what every problem with bureaucracy is. You you get mistakes and delays and people missed out and you know misunderstandings. So I'm sorry, you you can't have it both ways. You can't complain about people who don't deserve it getting it and 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 then also be like well i i and saying i wish it was more targeted and then also complain about the fact that uh some people aren't getting it when they when they need it this is the result i mean the the old thing is uh this is this is such a cliche and i feel like it's funny because this this discussion was happening uh in the u.s because of the the the, the checks uh, for so long and then now it's finally come here but i mean you know if you're that concerned about people who don't deserve this stuff getting it just tax them tax them afterwards if if you're if you want to get money into people's hands urgently don't drag down the process and and and, and bloat it by adding all this uh all these bureaucratic uh gates to it just just make it universal and then call back the money by taxing rich people more that that's really as simple as that it sounds deceptive because it's so simple but for some reason in our society and in, in the way that our politics is structured it it's we are incentivized to do the most complicated possible things and the least effective things instead of the most effective and the most simple thing. yeah exactly 
I was going to say almost word for word what you said there. <laughs> Fucking group think. Well, right? Yeah. Glad I mean, we're back on this. Uh, make me stealing your back on the vibe. Yeah, it's good. Um, but like you're right. Like this is what targeting looks like, right? So every time the the media is like, "Why didn't you target it more carefully?" It's like, no, you're asking that the wrong way around. Like the more time and the more effort and the more bureaucracy and the more money you spend on targeting stuff, this this will continue to self agglomerate, right? Like the more specific they try to get, the more of these little issues will mean like persnickety issues, like someone will be very slightly under or very slightly slightly over a threshold that feels wrong. Um, so yeah, like the, the easiest way to solve that problem is a massive payout to everybody and then claw back the money from those that even the right wing themselves admit that these people don't need more money, right? If they think that, why are they happy? Why do they want to tax them less? <laughs> you know? They can't both ways. This is a thing that's so incoherent, yeah. incoherent and... You know, Labour have been trying to defend themselves by claiming some level of universality um, of this payment, and that's why this happened. Like, oh, yeah, that's just what happens when you try and, like, give universal payments. But, mate, that's not what happened. Yeah. Like, this is because you tried to narrow it down, uh, that you haven't found the edges of the group you are targeting, um, that this issue has occurred. So Labour's on the defensive about it and trying to appeal to their to their base, Um but really, Labour National, you you both suck. <laughs> like, yeah, well, literally also, both wrong. Yeah. Let's also be clear about how useless this policy is. I mean, look, any amount of money that goes to people who are struggling is welcome, of course. I, I'm, I'd rather this exist than it didn't exist. But what are we talking about here? We're talking about, what, 350 bucks? Uh, one off. That, one block it. of cheese. That, one block spread, of cheese. <laughs> spread over three months. Yeah. <laughs> well, basically, I mean, okay, just for perspective, the median weekly rent in Auckland is over $600. So this amount of money over three months is not even enough to cover, not nearly enough to cover rent in, in the biggest city in the country uh, for a week. Uh, even in South Auckland, the cheapest rent, median, median asking rent is I think 340 bucks. So, you know, if you, if you live in your car for three months um, and, and, and save up all your payments, you will be able to afford one week in the South Auckland one bedroom uh, house. Uh, uh, the petrol price is uh, high you'll be back out of your car. So yeah, it's not, not, it's not even a full tank uh, on one payment. Okay. Yeah. So, I mean, uh, this is, this is not going to cause some massive inflationary spiral because inflation is being caused by a variety of things that are basically outside of New Zealand's control, um, including the, the war in Ukraine and including you know uh, supply chain problems. Um, and it's not going to particularly help people a little bit. They sh it should have been more generous, frankly. I, I, I would be surprised, actually, if it added that much to inflation because, I mean, if, if we look at, say, in the U.S., when people got these payments, what do they do with them? They spent them paying paying down debt. Um, they didn't really spend them on, on you know uh, goodies or whatever as as uh, you know that's the, sort of the the, the media term in vogue. Um, but they spent it on you know paying down credit cards, paying down their mortgage, uh, paying off their insanely inflated rent, which is not remotely commensurate with with the cost of like maintaining a a, a house. Yeah. So uh, you know a lot of this would have just been used. If it was more generous and should have been more generous, it would have been used to, I think, pay down people's uh, various 
debts and bills that they're owing, not as some sort of, you know, uh, adult rainbows in spending spree. And alongside that, there should have been uh, some kind of uh, windfall tax proposed. You know, we see it being talked about in every other country in the world. Um, as there's understanding that uh, petrochemical companies in particular have been absurdly price gouging, um, just taking enormous profits. Even in the UK, they're having that discussion right now where they've got two leadership contenders for the Tories um, who are so far right-wing that I don't think it exists in New Zealand, that that level of um, conservatism. And even they are, are floating this idea. Literally, if you if they want to bring down inflation and sort the cost of living, rip those profits back from the big companies that are gouging New Zealanders and pay it out back to the New Zealanders who who paid it into the into the corporations in the first place. And you would have ended up with more money left over as well. But I I don't understand why it's either the first approach has been not to pull in the things that are causing the cost of living crisis, but has been to just like, like what's the New Zealand terminology? There's just been a lolly scramble, you know, like just throw some money on the ground. And, you know, this is the one situation where it, it makes some sort of sense because it is just small change. Like it is, it is just this tiny, this paltry amount of money. It's a handful of coins. Um, compared to to what people are paying and they're week to week. Yeah, there is still, unfortunately, a bit of a kind of um, beneficiary bashing mentality in the New Zealand psyche. Um, And as much as it's kind of contained in media think pieces, at least, because it's just much easier to have this conversation about, you know, an individual living overseas, earning over the threshold, who's got $350 now, um, or, you know, in three months, we'll have $350, than to talk about these things at a structural level or like the inadequacy of of spending. It's a very Grant Robertson. Um, I mean, this is what you get with Grant Robertson economics, I guess, right? Like spending in mostly quite kind of targeted amounts to hit media cycles at strategic times without addressing the kind of elements in the room when it comes to spending or doing anything that's really going to piss off treasury. Do you think we're at the stage where we can start talking about Robinomics or Grantonomics? <laughs> I, I like Robinomics because, I mean... It sounds like theft. Well, I mean, what what happened under, under Robinson? I mean, it's not entirely its fault. It's also, I mean, a lot of it was the Reserve Bank. But, I mean, yeah, it, it's, and wealth has just been funneled to the people at the very top uh, in, a, in a way that's probably unprecedented in, in the last, well, at least couple of decades, if, if not longer. Um, and meanwhile, everyone everyone else is just absolutely being uh, uh, crushed. By, do you by, by do you both remember back when they were making the COVID payments and we were talking about Build Back Better and stuff? And we were having this conversation like, if they if Labor choose not to act here and they they make a bunch of these payments out, but the structures stay the same, um, in some respects, it is a it is worse than the nineteen eighties reforms um, because of because we have this one opportunity to restructure, Labour has Labour won a mandate on a transformation basis, um, and I think one of the routine pushbacks was like, "No, it's just it just is actively not worse because the scale of those nine eighties reforms was so immense." But I think in the last couple of years, 
where we've seen like even the so-called good things that have been done, like the COVID payments, you know, keeping everyone alive, um, just being funneled into this housing market, like that shift has been of wealth upwards has been incredible. And and particularly into the housing market, you know, into non-productive uh, assets um, has completely changed the way that New Zealand operates in a lot of ways. And unless like structural change comes alongside that very soon, um, and you know it, it probably has to come after twenty twenty three now because, as you say, uh, Philip Grant Robertson acts on a media cycle, not because he needs to. Um, we're kind of fucked. It's not great. I mean, yeah, I don't know uh, if I'd say it's worse than eighty. I mean, it's hard to. To compare, you, you know, you're talking about um, basically just the, the widening of wealth inequality uh, in, a, in an incredibly extreme way versus, you know, the dismantling of an entire... Of course. Uh, economy. So it's, you know, it's hard to, you know... Which well, you can't prove worse. an absence, right? You can't prove, like, uh, no, what, what should have happened was this really good thing, and because it didn't, well, yeah. You know, the, the, the what happened in the 80s put us on the path to... to uh, yeah. To, to where we, we are now, put us on the path to, to get the outcomes that we have now. So, you know, but I mean, yeah, it's, it's, it's pretty stunning. Uh, and it's, it's a real indictment of, of this party that came in with such uh, lofty rhetoric and, you know, has not delivered on that at all. In fact, as, as, as you suggest, Carl kind of done the opposite kind of in many ways, um, you know, uh, overseen a, a, a period that is uh, that is comparable to, to the eighties, even as it sort of rejected the um, that that kind of uh, ethos, at least at least in rhetoric. And I think, like, just one last thing I wanted to add on this. I guess it shows the level of class solidarity um, on the right that they are so comfortable universally attacking a scheme like this. Um, when you know, obviously, the reason they're doing it is that it's helping poor people. Um, whereas when the uh, cost of living payments came out through employers over the COVID period, which was also fundamentally about keeping people alive, you know, on paper at least, um, there was not the kind of criticism of this, right? So you weren't, you weren't getting people saying, oh, actually this employee claimed it uh, more than they should have. Like that's that wasn't the attack lines from the National Party uh, because they know that it was you know, extremely popular. Giving money to people is extremely popular. That's something these people yeah. need to, to recognise. And nor do they make these claims, as per usual, um, about the corporations that took that money. You know, and there's like NZME, Fletcher's, you know, it took the money, took posted a, a huge profit, laid off like hundreds of staff um, and then paid out to shareholders and did share, share buybacks with the fucking COVID money. Like, yeah. that's yeah. And no one... There's, I mean, this is this is such a theme in in all kind of uh, 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 Western discourse around any of their uh, pandemic recovery programs, uh, which is there's an intense focus when it comes to the money that is sent to ordinary people. Uh, it, it, there is such an intense scrutiny of you know, is everyone getting the right thing? Are, are we not paying too much? Are we? Are we are we being fiscally responsible? 
let's be really careful that, that we have safeguards so that, that all this money doesn't go to people who aren't deserving. And meanwhile, when it comes to help for business, I mean, it's just, you know, it's, it's, it, this is a cliche, but it's a fire hose. You just turn on and, and they were saturated by it and no one's asking for it back. I mean, yeah, you're right. What's, what happened to all the money that businesses got that, who didn't need it? Yeah. And they just took it. And, and we know uh, who they, they are. Like, we do. Yeah, we know who they are. No one, no one, that's way more money than this cost. Way more. 300 bucks over three months. for some, I think we should track them down one by one because that won't cost anything. Um, yeah. There will be no investigatory cost in that. Rather than go after these big corporates who we knew we know um, use the scheme in bad faith, um, and we don't need to do an invest- investigation about. Don't go after them because um, they should have just done the right thing. Uh, but you know, some small potatoes dude in uh, Sweden uh, who accidentally got this payment, drag him before the courts in New Zealand. Let's get him um, extradited. Well, I mean, that's why we know it's not about fiscal responsibility, right? It's about class solidarity um, and they need to protect their interests at all costs. It makes perfect sense. It's just, you know, you never see this. (laughs) If if you're working from that frame, you're just like, of course, that's what the argument is. Um, It just seems like most of the analysis does not, um, you know, approach this from a a state of reality. Um, They're they're part of that frame themselves. Just... uh... Put things into perspective, um, some back the envelope math, but uh, $600 million is around about how much this costs, like r- roughly, roughly. Uh, whereas New Zealand banks, I believe, grew their profits by $6 billion, $6 billion, uh, over the course of the pandemic because of directly because of policies that were taken by the Reserve Bank. Um, so, who really is the is the culprit here and when if we want to be fiscally responsible who should we really be, be targeting should we be targeting some random person overseas who has a hundred dollars in the bank account and uh, is a snitch I, it seems like yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well you know should we be going after these people and saying hey okay well you got really you had a really good couple of years uh we're gonna take some of that back so that you know we can make sure that people, you know, families can have a roof over their heads and people can afford food. Yeah, I think we need to set up um, an office of investigations funded at about $200, $300 million a year to track down New Zealanders overseas who've been receiving these payments and get them to pay them back through a kind of complex leveraged scheme where we have to send a, an assassin every few years until they finish paying it back. I, I mean, the, the beauty of that kind of scheme, Philip, is you can just replicate our um, student loan repayments um, <laughs> framework and, and you're, you're good to go. But let's, let's move on from um, the sunny shores of New Zealand, um, the paradise of New Zealand, the uh, God's own, own country, New Zealand, to uh, interna- international section uh, for this episode. Bronco, what's, what's been happening out there in the world? You, you got a better view of it from outside our borders. You live in the world, right? Well, yeah, yeah, I'm I'm out here in, in the globe somewhere. Uh, I mean, thankfully, I I don't I'm not watching any of this stuff firsthand because uh, even though I'm not in New Zealand, I am not also uh, in Taiwan or China um, or Japan or Korea, where all of this would be infinitely more uh, terrifying. Although, you know. Don't, don't, don't get me wrong, uh, the stuff happening with Taiwan 
everyone should be uh, worried about because wait a second does pelosi not have a shoulder cam on that's just beaming straight to cable cable news <laughs> No, I, I don't think they've, uh, they they gave her that much technology. Although someone did tell me that cost you know some tens of millions of dollars uh, to get the protection to her to do this little stunt. I mean, uh, for those of you who have not uh, you know uh, uh, paid attention for the last week, or maybe I don't know, you know uh, did a total digital detox or something, and just don't know what's been happening in the world. Uh, Nancy Pelosi, the Speaker of the House, uh, second in line to the U.S. presidency, flew to Taiwan this week and uh china was very unhappy about it uh, extremely unhappy uh to the point where they have um and and you know of course whenever whenever a larger country and it often is these days uh the united states uh does a provocation a thing that knows is provocative to another large country um it it does so also with the knowledge that the consequences are not going to fall on the United States, really, at least not yet. Uh, rather, they're going to fall on, you know, some, you know, poor third country uh, that is basically caught up in the middle of all of this. And and that's Taiwan. Of course, what is the result of, of Pelosi's trip to Taiwan to sort of, you know, which was meant to be this show of um, democratic resolve, this kind of symbol of liberal resistance to autocracy, that's the way that she sold it. Um, what was the result? Is, is anything improved uh, for Taiwan's situation regarding China? Uh, no, I don't think democracy has been particularly uh, improved, uh, whether in Taiwan or anywhere else in the world. But what we did see was uh, China um, uh, imposed trade restrictions on Taiwan as punishment, launch a, a series of military drills over the course of days where they basically encircled Taiwan and very threatening maneuvers around it, uh, launched a bunch of missiles, uh, four of which went over the island and landed in the waters beyond it. Very scary stuff. Uh, and now China has cut off talks with the United States on, on military issues and on climate change, which, uh, lest we uh, need to remind you, uh, is the most important and threatening and urgent security threat in the, United, in the, in the entire world. Um, and so that has been the result of, of uh, Pelosi's visit. Uh, Taiwan basically has been, has, been, um, has been hit by a bunch of pretty scary uh, measures and the world is less safe uh, as a whole as a result. So why, um, why has China taken this as such a, an affront for people who haven't been following Chinese politics? Um, what's been changing? Yeah, and look, I mean, I'm not, I'm not an expert or anything, but you know, I know enough to know that uh, Taiwan and China have had very uh, difficult relations ever since uh, the communists won in China. Taiwan was where the uh, the nationalists, the losing nationalists, went and basically became this outpost. Uh, Taiwan has been a part of China for hundreds of years uh, since I believe 1689. Um, so, you know, in this grand scheme of things, the, the, uh, Taiwan's kind of, um, divorce from China, well, you know, separation, let's say from China is, is, uh, relatively recent and, and kind of a, a small thing in the, in the historical scheme of things. The Chinese still see Taiwan as part of China. Um, and I mean, most of the international community 
accepts that Taiwan is not an independent country. They also see it as part of China. Including um, the US. In the US. <laughs> including the United States, yes. So that is a really key thing. They saw it that way in the 40s and 50s, in, in the 70s. Uh, that This was the big stabilizing thing for US-China relations. Richard Nixon went to China. Uh, they made up and they said, you know what? We, uh, we, you, you know, we're committed to this idea of the one China principle. Taiwan is part of China. Theoretically, we want you to reunify at some point, um, but uh, uh, we don't want you to use force to do it. And that's part of this whole strategic ambiguity idea. Uh, the U.S., um, <laughs> it's, it's very weird. It's extremely weird to explain. The idea is that the U.S. would never say that it would either support Chinese independence or go to war over Taiwan. Uh, if China used force to reunify it. But they also won't say that they won't do that. And they will also heavily imply that they might do that. But maybe they won't. And so the whole idea is that um, it's, it, it prevents China from doing anything drastic militarily uh, by, you know, by having this threat of possible war uh, with the United States looming over it. Um, and at the same time, the U.S., broadly accepts the Chinese claim over Taiwan. And then they, therefore they can just sort of put that issue to the side and, and they could for decades deal, uh, you know, uh, as, as two, two states to, to each other and, and trade and have all the normal relations because the, the contentious issue was put to bed. Unfortunately, um, ever since 2016, ever since Donald Trump came to office, um, they, they've increased, the U S has increasingly tested that because they've seen China as this, rising competitor and increasingly enemy. And uh, unfortunately, what happens in US politics when the, the, the hard right party does something, especially on national security, the uh, weak liberal party, the Democrats, go along with it because they have no other kind of vision and they're, they're terrified of being accused of being, um, uh, uh, you know, uh, pansies, for lack of a better word, on foreign policy. And so now you have the Democrats doing a whole host of these really dangerous provocative things to sort of, I guess, prove that there's stuff in China. I mean, uh, you know, just I'll, I'll stop talking in a second, but as a, one example, I mean, three times Biden was asked this uh, over the last year, is, uh, would the U.S. go to war or, you know, intervene militarily if Taiwan was invaded by China? Uh, which we talked about that strategic ambiguity thing just before. Under that doctrine, the answer is sort of a, an, an artsy no comment. You would find a way to just finesse saying nothing either way. Instead, Biden said yes three times. And then his office had to go back and correct him and say, no, that's not what the U.S. would not do that because that's not our policy. But the thing is, maybe that's Biden being an old man uh, and being Biden and just saying something stupid and not knowing what he's saying. Very possible. But also, you know, it could be a, a deliberate strategy of kind of like subtly using that perception to, to needle Beijing. And I don't really know. The I'm US really would asking. never get engaged in that kind of... <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, we, could, we, we can't think of any examples in the last uh, in the last year, let alone the last like 30, where uh, the US is deliberate, or Washington policymakers have deliberately provoked... A, a larger power that they're in competition with, uh, you know, do something incredibly stupid and awful. Yeah, it's one of those things where it's 
the same issue as with Russia um, in in the media or information space. These people, i.e. China and Russia, are both fucking insane, apparently, according to the US. Um, but also we can we can like just nudge them with this flaming branch and it should have no effect. Like, no, 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 no. This 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 won't do anything. This is fine. This is fine. Like we're we're just saying words. These guys are fucking crazy. Uh they will just kill us. They're gonna nuke us. Uh but you know, like no 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 no, but this is just you know, this is just diplomacy. This is just no, no, it doesn't mean anything. Um and Anyone like putting those things side by side sees that those strategies don't line up. You know, those those are two different visions of reality. Um, mm. You know, Putin or or they just I think they just talk about the CCP as the as the big enemy of these enormous uh, malicious threats. Um, we also like have huge like economic ties with or like and so there's this this continual doublespeak um, that is almost never mirrored by other actions of the of those governments. Um, and it's just getting to the point where someone's going to do something by accident is, is how it feels. No, and we're, and we're talking about nuclear powers here. I mean, China's a nuclear power. Russia's a nuclear, Russia has the most nuclear warheads out of any country. The US is a nuclear power. I mean, the, we're, we're, we're sailing into uncharted territory. Yeah, because th- this is, you know, um, we had the Cuban Missile Crisis 60 years ago, uh, but that was about the closest that the US and, and, and another nuclear power came to uh, blows. Um, that we know of. That we know, well, I mean, there were, there were other, other instances for sure, but uh, in terms of, you know, th- those are like accidents and, and, and things, but I mean, this was, this was really close. Um, you know, we... Uh, it's not clear with a nuclear armed China how any sort of war would go. It could very easily uh, uh, spiral into something um, very catastrophic. So we got to be careful. I mean, look, it, it comes down to I think it's it's a similar thing as with the with the um, Ukraine and Russia issue. Uh, the the question for anyone, and I, I think particularly for the left, because right now you're seeing a lot of the same discourse around Russia and Ukraine kind of being transplanted onto China and Taiwan. The idea that, well, you know what, um, you know, why should we be thinking about whatever the, you know, why should we be taking into consideration what the, the uh, Chinese uh, uh, Communist Party thinks? Because ultimately, you know, the, the main thing is we have to stick up for democracy and we have to fight for liberal values and we have to, you know, we should be supporting the self-determination of this, of this island nation. Um, and that's certainly one way to look at it. Uh, you know, the other way to look at it, the way that I, look at it and where I think that we, we should be a little, you know, we should take more into consideration is that uh, reality does not always comport to our hopes and dreams of what we would like the world and what society, uh, you know, uh, international relations to, to look like. The fact, whatever you think about, whether you think Xi Jinping is a, is, is a dangerous maniac who would, you know, possibly plunge the world into nuclear war, whether you think Putin is someone who's unstable and you know uh, uh, willing to to you know drop nukes and do all sorts of things. I I, I think they're both pretty dangerous. I don't think they're quite the same, but they're they're both uh, pretty dangerous uh, people and, and 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 systems. But they are also they're a fact of the world. They exist. You can't uh, 
get rid of China's military power. You can't get rid of at the moment, you know, uh, just just with a click of a finger, Russia's nuclear uh, uh, stockpile or its um, oil and gas uh, that it has. Uh, we have to deal with these countries, and we have to, to some extent, you know, we, we have to balance our liberal democratic aspirations with, you know, such as I they are. Is, yeah. Well, with, with what I think is the, the, the bigger thing here, which is we want to avoid catastrophic war and at worst avoid catastrophic nuclear annihilation. Um, I think if you're a progressive, if you're someone who cares about human beings, if you're someone even who cares about these particular uh, uh, or these particular states here, Ukraine and, and Taiwan, uh, in both cases, wh which countries, which places do you think are going to uh, be first in the firing line? If, if nuclear war happens, it, it's it's going to be those places. It's gonna, they're going to be hit with a tactical nuke, um, and so we we have to. Unfortunately, oftentimes in the world, there, there is not a menu, a suite of here's the good choices that we have, and here's the good stuff we can do, and here's all the bad stuff, and let's just do the good stuff. We often just have a, a, a suite of bad options, and then some of those options are bad, but you can live with them, and some of them are really really bad, and some of them are absolutely goddamn catastrophic so uh you know look i mean china th there was a, a crisis of this in 1996 same thing china was much weaker then uh uh the u.s basically sent a bunch of warships into the region and as a show of force to say hey better back off taiwan because at the end of the day we are willing to use force and, and we will steamroll you um, China since then has done a lot to uh, build up its military. It's it's a far more powerful country and economically a far more significant country than it was uh, twenty something years ago, twenty six years ago. Um, and so now we have to accept that reality. Uh, you know, you don't see you don't see Chinese warships uh, or you don't, you don't see Chinese diplomats, sorry, going to um, Puerto Rico or Hawaii and saying that you know they're going to support the local. <laughs> Independence movements there, you know, for good reason. So I, it, it comes down to, you know, I mean, for the United States, it comes down to basically respecting that, look, these countries, the U.S. is a very powerful country, but these countries are also very powerful, and you're going to have to respect that to avoid something really, really horrific happening. One of um, the um, the narratives that's going to be pushed um, around Russia and Ukraine, um, you know, we saw it with China, uh, Chinese security deals with the Solomons as well, is this idea of agency um, and, you know, some of these um, smaller players um, having the agency to make decisions on the world stage. And is is it being asked at all, um, what about the agency of the Speaker of the House in the US? <laughs> yeah, well, and also, uh, to be clear, like, it's not as if everyone in Taiwan was thrilled about this. Uh, visit. So this idea that this is, you know, that they're doing a favor to Taiwan here, is, is, uh, like do, doing it in response to what Taiwan wants, is pretty dubious anyway. Uh, there were protests against at, Pelosi at when she arrived. Yeah, exactly. The the leader of the the Kuomintang, the the, the nationalist opposition party, or not the leader, sorry, but representative in the U.S. said, uh, you know, this is a pretty, this is like a bad idea and not really productive for anyone here. Um, and there's been other, you know, I'm not, I'm not going to say that's the, that's not the majority opinion, I don't think, but, uh, but there has been some disquiet over the fact that she did this. So the idea of like, you know, 
the question is always what agency, whose agency, uh, which, which voices in particular are you going to listen to? Um, how is that agency determined? I mean, public opinion is not something that just exists in a vacuum. Public opinion is shaped and it's changed. Uh, you know, in, in, in Ukraine, for instance, um, for many, many, many years, the majority of public opinion was against joining NATO. Uh, and you can find diplomatic cables where the U.S. is talking to, U.S. officials are talking to Ukrainian officials and they're talking about this problem and how they're going to have to do things to shift public opinion. Uh, so public opinion is, is, is not necessarily the best thing to, uh, to, to listen to, especially when a country, you know, we're talking about uh, Taiwan, it's going to have a nationalist upsurge here because of the fact that it's being threatened. Uh, when that is the case, societies don't always make the, the, the best decision making. You know, they're not always making the, the best choices because they're not necessarily thinking in the most rational terms and everything in more emotional terms. Um, and so the rest of the world has to think about, you know, not just thinking about, oh, we're going to blindly listen to what, you know, so-and-so voices are telling us. We have to think about what is the best thing for the world. Um, and what is the best thing for, for just general stability and peace? You took my joke and, and you made it into something serious, Bronco. And, uh, well, <laughs> you know, thank you for that. <laughs> like this sort of it sort of touches on like a genuine philosophical thing that we've talked about in so many different contexts now from like international affairs to like local politics to like free speech and platforming discussions that's like um there seems to be this kind of rhetorical trick that people use now um and probably always have but that's something i've been noticing at least for the last few years it's like, now yeah maybe that's just it's about um people talk about which voices to listen to as opposed to what they're listening to. Like the substance of the thing has been replaced by the, the standpoint of the thing. Um, and it's not just, it's not just like the standpoint issue because it gets used in this whole range of contexts. Like it, it's pretty kind of clear on an international scale, right? When you're talking about um, the Solomon Islands should be able to do, we should just listen to what the Solomon Islands thinks. Like there obviously is a substantive limit to that. Um, and people, I think, kind of use the positionality of who's who's saying the thing to disguise the fact that they support the substance of the of the actual comment, right? Yeah. <laughs> they're not people aren't <laughs> saying we listen to Taiwan because they're Taiwan. They're saying we listen to Taiwan because we don't like China. That's the smuggled premise that always gets kind of concealed, right? If Taiwan was doing uh, a bunch of genocides and stuff, these people didn't like. No, it'd be disinformation. Yeah, I imagine they wouldn't be saying we need to listen to this uh, small, weak voice on the world stage because of who they are, right? Yeah. Well, I mean, yeah, that's that's a, I think a really uh, a really key point. Um, and I mean, look, we we don't we don't really apply that principle uh, uh, consistently at all. I mean, just in the Ukraine situation, uh, the West, uh, NATO, the US have been very clear that they are not going to impose a no-fly zone, despite the fact that Ukrainian uh, voices have been calling for that. From the beginning uh so clearly there are limits to th there's a point where we go oh actually no we are just going to listen to what we think is the best thing to do and not to what you do um in the same way you know Zelen how many times has Zelensky said publicly and privately that he wants the u.s to enter negotiations the u.s is not once trying to negotiate with russia uh to end the war uh, uh and i i know that that all the people who are so um you know up and arms about not listening to ukrainian agency or what have you completely ignore this. They have no problem with the fact that the, the government um, is, is not, you know, listening to Zelensky on, on that particular matter. So, you know, we, we already don't do this. And you're, so you're right. It is a, it's a rhetorical trick. It's very cheap. Um, and that's not 
how you debate things. It's, it's certainly not how the uh, crucial issues like you know, uh, uh, avoiding nuclear war, avoiding military escalation should be decided by just sort of like standpoint theory. And it's often at odds with um, the policy reality um, between these countries as well. Uh, so even when Russian sanctions were ongoing, like a lot of oil and gas stuff was like on the table the entire time, um, if, like out of Europe um, for for the for their um, energy needs. Um you have situations uh, in the past where there's been outrage about uh, Russia and Chechnya um, or wherever, um, where the UK was like supplying weapons. You know, like it's the the rhetoric I feel, and I think this is maybe why it's more obvious, is becoming further dis- detached um, from what is actually happening. And it's clearer in that way. Um, you can clearly see Zelensky saying right right from the start, like from last year, um, please come, come to the table on this. We want to, you know, we'd rather not be invaded. Uh, we don't have to be. Um, come and sit down with us and, and help us get it over the line. And instead, they just get more and more arms. They, they are getting put in a position where Ukrainian people are dying to fight this war for the US, essentially, because the US refuses to listen to them and and you can just put those that the statement and the reality of that side by side you can see they're completely different i mean there's one other takeaway we might uh talk about here which is the the context of new zealand you know we've covered the last hundred number of weeks uh this seeming subtle drift of new zealand towards the kind of it being more Washington oriented and, and, and you know, losing some of that, that independent foreign policy that we, as New Zealanders, pride. But I mean, you know, stuff like this makes you wonder. I mean, again, is this, the, is, if we're going to hitch ourselves to a, a, a pony, and I don't think we should, I don't think New Zealand should hitch itself to any pony. But if we are, I mean, is this, is this a, a safe bet? I mean, uh, you know, this was, this is supposed to be the liberal adults in the room that is governing the country at the moment and they've just done this completely stupid pointless thing um that that has led to a third country you know now being threatened and, and you know having trade restrictions done um you know that does not bode well i, I mean the, the the right now europe uh because of the the sanctions that the u.s convinced it to, to put on russia um well russia's responded by cutting off some of its uh, oil and gas and now Europe is being put plunged into an economic and political crisis uh, you know I mean so the, the interests of the US are not necessarily well I'm not going to say the interests of the US I mean the interests of, of the, the the small number of elite that, that, that govern the US is not really connected to the interests of the great number of people in either the, the, the allied countries or even in, in the country itself. I mean, none of this is good for the American public either. So, um, you know, I just think we should think about that. Uh, like, you know, Biden, it's not even clear who's running foreign policy. People are talking about how, you know, Biden told Pelosi not to go. She went anyway. Maybe that's all just a ruse. Maybe not. I mean, it suggests that, you know, the, the fractious politics of the United States make it a very irresponsible and erratic um, act on the world stage. So do we really want to 
fully cast our chips in the data, but then actually maintain some independence. The big question for me is, um, was there a significant um, amount of stock options bought by Pelosi's husband um, <laughs> before she went uh, to Taiwan that either dropped a, a long way or, or went right up? Um, and whether this was some just... And this is almost not even a joke. Did, like, did this have an impact on her personal fortunes? Because it seems like further and further, members of the US ruling class are making decisions on that basis and almost nothing else. Yeah, I mean, I think her husband might have dumped some stock. I'm not sure about that. But yeah, I, would, I mean, I would not be remotely surprised. Um, and we will we will find that out uh, for sure. I mean, that's the other thing about Taiwan. I mean, the, the, there's an element here. Taiwan is... Uh, is, is uh, a major hub for making these uh, these chips that are needed uh, to, for, for, for cars and the like. And so uh, there is like a real economic element to this. And it also points to how terrible it would be also if there was a war beyond obviously the human devastation. I mean, it would just further fuel uh, this, this economic chaos that we're seeing. It would further fuel this inflation that, you know, here in New Zealand gets blamed on, um, I don't know, <laughs> people without enough money to live. Government spending, Broncos, all government spending. Yeah, exactly. But in reality, is it's, it's because, it's, it's, I mean, really, look, if New Zealand is really a valued uh, ally of the US, maybe one of our roles here should be to say to them, hey, can you just chill out? Can you <laughs> take it easy, please? Yeah, the war's going to be here in the Pacific. We'd rather it yeah, wasn't. Exactly. Yeah, you know, maybe that's something that that as 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 trusted and valued uh, partners in the uh, in the Indo-Pacific, as as we now are saying, uh, maybe that's something that we should say. Like, hey, this this stuff you're doing, it actually like it affects us and it impacts us, and we don't want a goddamn war <laughs> happening in the, in the bloody Pacific. I think that's a, a good place to tie it up. Once again, uh, you you've joined us at one or two hundred for your. Weekly dose of doom and gloom, um, <laughs> but but honestly, I, I I hope we're able to like um, make some sense of things, um, give an analytical framework that kind of pulls apart some of the media and political narratives uh, that are out there. Because I think the first step to changing the course of things is to understand them, um, understand the different pressures that are involved, uh, understand why things are happening, um, and from there we can decide what, what a better uh, way forward is. So thanks again for joining us. Um, thank you to my co-hosts, Bronco and Philip, uh, for joining me once again on a New Zealand Sunday morning. Uh, you can check out our Patreon in the summary uh, to, to chuck us a few dollars and, and keep this independent media running. It's really appreciated. Uh, and give us a share. Uh, put it on your TikTok. Um, or just retweet it on Twitter if you're if you're not on TikTok. But those are the only two social media uh, apps that we'll accept. Thanks again for joining us. We'll catch you sometime in the next week. See you later. Relentless routines, the dying embers of your dreams. You die keeping your glass half full The relentless routines The dying embers of your dreams Is a lie aspirational Will you die keeping your glass half